Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns, the podcast where three film aficionados discuss a film or series of films, this week we're doing Spider-Man by the way, and then pitch their own ideas for what the sequel should be. I mean, that, that really is it in a nutshell. Do be aware that this week's episode contains considerable spoilers for Spider-Man, Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 3, The Amazing Spider-Man, and The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Enjoy! Hello listeners, welcome to Diminishing Returns. Uh, I'm Alan and I'm here as always with Sol. Hello. And Calvin. Hello. Right then, so this week we're looking at Spider-Man. No doubt we'll be going right back to some sort of animated series with you guys, I'm sure. Uh, but also we're looking at the, the, sort of the, the most well-known films, uh, the uh, Tobey Maguire ones, the more recent ones with Andrew Garfield... And then whatever the current thing going on is, which you'll have to update me on because I couldn't be bothered to look into it. Um, so can I can I t- make a guess early on? <laughs> you okay. certainly can. Alan's going to be really interested in how Spider-Man works as a metaphor for puberty and it's just going to be <laughs> built around uh, that. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> Spider-Man then. Alan, you just alluded to um, the comics and the cartoons and stuff. Um, I don't really know much about them, certainly the the old cartoons and things. If anyone's going to know about those, it'll be Calvin. He used to watch Fox Kids or whatever with the X-Men. Not in, like, 1978. I don't want that, you know. Yeah, there were 90s Spider-Man cartoons Oh, there were, yes, yes, I remember those, but I didn't care for them very much. I'm going to put my cards on the table right now and say that I'm I'm not a huge superhero fan outside of X-Men and Batman, really, anyway, but Spider-Man is one that I've just never really liked or identified with or cared about but he's actually a really big deal isn't he like i forget how yeah he's one of the he's one of the a-list superheroes and he kind of always has been he's not like he's not like iron man who had to be forcibly shoved into our consciousness yeah yeah a few years ago yeah, yeah. Which is why, because he's one of the ones that existed back in the 70s, from what I understand. Yeah, there was yeah. a TV show and there was an animated show, uh, which has spawned many a popular meme these days. Yeah, I think I think his comic launched in the 60s even. It might be right. in the 50s, but he's, he, he was a big deal in the 60s, certainly. I mean, it makes sense. Like, it makes sense why this character is so big, considering he is a teenager, he's in high school, he's a nerdy character with superhero powers. He's not like some rich bloke yeah. who lives isolated on top of a hill or an alien who's crashed on Earth. I think I said that in one of my notes somewhere. That it's like, it's really playing to its demographic here, isn't yeah. it? It's like, mm. yeah, slightly dorky... 17-year-old boys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I really like Spider-Man. I feel like a lot of the initial love I had for the character has has faded away now because of what's, you know, fatigue with reboots and things. But mm-hmm. on on paper, I think he's a pretty great character. He, he is quite different from what you get with most superheroes. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like them, and and when and when the superhero boom was taking off, I I was really on board with Spider Man. Absolutely, I was way more into Spider Man than X Men and things like that. So I, I'm very much the the Spider fan here. I think uh, surprises us all. Well, we do also have to add here for any new listeners that Saul is a very much a Sam Raimi fanboy. Uh, so that's oh, yeah. 
that's going to play into this episode a lot. Mm. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I'm, I, I like Spider-Man in theory. I like the uh, kind of story behind it and the character and all that. Um, not to go too far into it yet, but yeah, I also suffered fatigue uh, from watching the same film five times. Yeah. Uh, but generally, I, I think it's good. And uh, But I think, I guess it was uh, a breakthrough for superhero films uh, in general. I mean, it was that and X-Men and what was, when, was, when was Blade, that kind of period yeah. mm. of the reinvention of superhero films. Yeah, totally. I'd say X-Men was very much the film that launched the, um, the modern superhero genre and Spider-Man is very much the film that cemented that and mm. made more I mean, than just a flash in the pan. Yeah. I mean, more than, more than anything else, it made a huge amount of money. Mm. Uh, didn't it which which from a you know from a studio point of view that validates it mm. uh, whether it's whether people like it or not <laughs> but people did like it it was reviewed very well it was it was a huge huge deal the first spider-man mm. film yeah i mean it was it was one of those things that was parodied endlessly for yeah. about a year or two and it it feels like it's faded from the public consciousness a bit in that regard it's still a very well-known film but it, it hasn't quite stood the test of time as something with you know these these sequences that i don't know it, it felt like people were almost considering it you know something up there with star wars and the like in terms of its cultural penetration when that first film came out yeah yeah oh everyone was doing the upside down kiss like sp- spoofing that and and all sorts i really like sam raimi i really like spider-man i really like sam raimi's spider-man um not massively surprising i'm sure i think the first film's great uh, one of the big things I want to really praise is the cast of these films oh! and the casting. And it's, I, I'm sure we'll get into this a bit further on because a lot of people like to complain about Tobey Maguire and uh, Kirsten Dunst, sorry. It's, it really struck me watching these films again that like every little character in these films is some sort of interesting face or an actor who's subsequently gone on to become a huge star. I mean, fucking Octavia Spencer is the mm. girl who checks him into the wrestling match at the start. You know, it's To it's be that. fair, bef- even before this, she was in Big Mama's house, so... Yeah. <laughs> and after this, she was in Halloween 2. The- <laughs> but anyway, it, it's just... Cliff Robertson as Ben Parker is wonderful. Rosemary Harris as Aunt May... Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Bruce Campbell. I'm a big fan of him as the wrestling announcer. Course, yes. um, you've got Elizabeth Banks as the receptionist before she'd really become a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Betty Brant, she's called, that character. Uh, Macy Gray, for some reason. And J.K. Simmons, who is like yeah, such a perfect bit of casting. that mm-hmm. they, I mean, they didn't even bother putting him in the reboot because they knew they couldn't even... <laughs> touch that performance <laughs> i really couldn't disagree more on the cast i think this is um really? apart, apart from jk simmons who is brilliant i don't think you could have assembled a more bland bunch of people really? for these parts i hate toby Maguire. i hate kirsten dunce uh, i'm fairly indifferent about those two i think they do a f- i do think they do a good job with the roles and selling what they're given but it it really willem dafoe as the Green Goblin is uh, phenomenal. Do you not think yeah, he I think is that makes brilliant in this sense, film? Yeah. He's fine. And James Franco again. Before before he was like a deal. I just think every little role in these films is, and it goes beyond that. It's it's like the the guy who plays his landlord in the second film is he, he's a real like he's just some jobbing actor. He's not a well known guy, but he's such a perfect, interesting face that 
they've clearly put a lot of thought and effort into getting like every little role. I don't know, like it, it, it's just such a a beige cast for me. There's no one here that I'm excited about apart from J.K. Simmons. Basically, my my feelings are that the Amazing Spider-Man films they just put big, well-known actors in all the roles. Mm. And as a result of that, you've got Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, who are undeniably brilliant in those roles and are better than Tobey Maguire mm-hmm. and, and Kirsten Dunst. But then you've got just, like, some random kid from Mad Men thrown in as Harry Osborn, some other random name. There are all these, like, big names being thrown around. Uh, BJ Novak is some random guy. The casting is just really like, what big name can we get? And all the small roles are just generic, you know, just generic bit part players. Whereas I really feel like Sam Raimi's films feel like he's put so much time and effort into finding just these interesting people. And and I I listened to the commentary on on these films as well uh, in preparation for this. And they were talking about how, for example, the montage of uh, people talking about Spider-Man in the first film and they're sort of saying, like, you know, I, I think he's a menace. I don't trust him. I, I think he's great. Spider-Man, he's trying to help and all this sort of stuff. Mm. They went and just he found stinks and of... I don't like him. Yeah, <laughs> they went and they wanted to get, like, real New York-looking people. And they went and found a load of local construction workers, pulled them off site. And so <laughs> most of the people in that montage are just like New York builders and I think that's the sort of thing that comes across you've also got Lucy Lawless in there uh, yeah, weirdly of course. I think she's just mates with <laughs> Sam Raimi yeah <laughs> uh, just uh, on that note the guy who says he stinks and I don't like him I the reason I remember that line is because the guy is a uh, it's called Jim Norton is a stand-up comedian and I oh. like I know his work so uh, that's why that line jumped out at me <laughs> yeah th- there's so many people like that mixed in there's um uh Joel McHale who plays Jeff in Community yeah, yeah. is the guy in the bank in the second film um there's Phil Lamar is an extra on the train in the second one who Phil Lamar is voices on Future Armor he plays mm-hmm. Hermes and um he voices most black characters in most animated cartoons before Kevin Michael Richardson came on the scene. But um, there's a whole heap of people like that just in the background. One of the things I kind of made a note of is I can't decide if Tobey Maguire is a good actor or not. It was... I, I kept fluctuating because there was times when he was doing these really subtle things and it displayed a lot of emotion... And then other times where he'd like be gurning like some kind of clown. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what, it's, what he's doing. And I've seen him in other things and he's never really like won me over. But I've, he's never come across as being terrible either. And I can't quite figure him out. And then and, and similarly with, with Kirsten Dunst. I've always liked Kirsten Dunst. I think she's, she's good in this. She's, I don't really know what, what happened to her in the last sort of... 10 years. I haven't seen her in anything. Very... Like, I watched these films when I was younger. I was aware of her. I never really saw her in anything where I thought she's brilliant until quite recently. It was season two of Fargo she's in and she is, oh, yeah. like, the best thing in it. She's fantastic. It's mm. a really comedic turn from her. Am I right in thinking that she hated being in the Spider-Man films? Like, that was a real thing that she, um, was sort of, she got contracted for, and then she... I mean, this is why we don't see her in big blockbuster films, because she doesn't actually like them very much. And from what, from what I understand, the only reason she signed on to Spider-Man in the first place is because she was like, oh, well, Sam Raimi's an interesting director, and Tobey Maguire's an interesting actor, so we'll see what happens. But then when it became this huge box office thing, she kind of ran away from it. I don't know, she, I mean, she dyed her hair for the third film, having only worn a wig for the previous two, so it certainly doesn't sound like she 
was mm. turning away from it whilst it was happening. Yeah. Um, and listening, to, she's on all the commentaries that I've listened to, and she obviously they're not going to put out a commentary where the actors are complaining and saying this was awful. But she mm. was very enthusiastic. She was on the first one, and Toby Maguire wasn't even on that one. Um, and every opportunity she had, like I must admit, she did do a lot of like pointing out continuity errors and things that yeah. didn't make sense in the films. But she's also constantly Brilliant. saying like. I love this so much. Sam Raimi's so brilliant. I, you know, he's such mm-hmm. a great director and all this sort of stuff. So, but she's made she's made interesting choices in the sense of like she did um, with Sofia Coppola. She did Mar- Marie Antoinette. Uh, mm. She did the Lars von Trier film True. about yeah. depression. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Melancholia. So, yeah, you, you know, like like that's kind of interesting choices. Obviously, someone who's trying to do things a little bit differently. I would say. Yeah. But going back to the films, and especially the first film, like I think what you were saying about the castle and about the, the interesting sort of supporting characters, and they went and just got some construction men from New York because they needed construction men from New York. Doesn't that say a lot about the first three films and how they were true Sam Raimi films, whereas the Amazing Spider-Man oh, films feel, feel much more like uh, just a squeaky clean studio, exactly, where everyone is vetted. Absolutely. And, and, and that's one of the notes I've made, actually, is that... Time, at times watching these, I I couldn't believe how much of a an altered product they were. Yeah, for yeah. for a major yeah. multi million dollar I, blockbuster I made exactly franchise. The same and note, that's yeah. that's arguably what killed the third one. I mean, I, I'll make a defense. We'll come, for come back Raimi to that. that one, yeah. But, yeah, we'll come back but, to that. Um, and and it's throughout the films. It goes beyond the casting because it, it's the cast, but it's everything. And one of the reasons I love these films is that there's in almost every shot there's something i can point out and just like go oh did you know this? i realized watching these films that i love practical special effects but mm-hmm. it has to go be it can't just be blowing up cars and and men running down buildings on wires like it can't just be we blew this up for real like mad max because that bores the shit out of me what i find interesting is practical special effects where they're like problem solving and these films are full of it there's there's a scene early on where you see a pov shot and toby Maguire's uh spider-man doesn't need his glasses anymore because his eyes are fixed because he's you know got super powers and they fixed his eyes so in order to get that shot they had to make a giant pair of glasses to like hold (laughs) over the camera I love that. There's a scene early on where he, I don't know if you remember, in the lunchroom. Of uh, course, yeah. That Mary Jane trips and yep, all her yep, food yep. goes flying in the air. He rushes in and he catches everything. And they did that in camera. They did about 50 takes and mm. they covered all of the lunch items in a sticky adhesive substance. But other than that, Toby Maguire had to run in and catch everything in order on the tray as it fell in front of camera. And, and that sort of thing just... It's these films, like every few scenes, you get something like that. Mm. And that's not to say there isn't a load of CGI in there, because there is. It's kind of the dawn of the point where CGI was allowing these sorts of films to finally be made on this scale. But there really is just something special about every moment in these films for me and and it's not just those special effects like i say it's the casting it's it's the choices being made the music the yeah i I made a similar note that basically i said that what i like about sam raimi is that it's there's a real lack of finesse it feels Mm -hmm. raw and dirty but in a good way Uh, and and it feels like low budget filmmaking like that kind of yeah right scrapping things together but on this huge budget there was one scene it was in the second spider-man film that was just pure Sam Raimi. It was like watching Evil Dead. Oh, uh, yeah, do you, absolutely. The Doctor Octopus surgery scene. Operating theatre yes. scene, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it just it transitions into Evil Dead. 
But how great <laughs> is that scene as well? Like it that is a great film scene. Just comes to life so much in that moment. But that, it's strange, isn't it? Because I, I'm not sure if I can quite put my finger on what it is, like practically what made me think that. But it was just like, this is Sam Raimi. This is like mm. watching Evil Dead. There's a lot of um, just really manic camera works. Obviously, there's a chainsaw thing, which is a bit of a reference, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and there, there's stuff like the the woman being dragged into the the shadows and the, the, the linoleum being scratched up by her nails. Yeah. And, and again, that's another effect where they, they had to put wax on the floor so that she could <laughs> scrape it off with her nails. But you could that's tell, great. you could tell that was real. It looked yeah. really cool. Yeah. It's the crash zooms and crash whips and all these like weird camera movements that you don't really see, certainly not mm. in glossy Hollywood productions and weird sound effects and stuff as well. And But it does suit a kind of comic book style, like that comic oh, book Oh, absolutely, world. yeah. Something else with these films as well, though, I mean, they really do embrace as you say, that kind of comic book sensibility. And it's to the point that I never really picked up on this when I first watched the films, but recently, a while ago, someone told me that the films were period pieces and they were set in the 60s, like the comic books, as a kind of offhand comment. And I was like, wait, what? No, they're not. But then I really like thought about <laughs> got, it. And I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't quite disprove it. And, and watching these films, there, there's a few points where modern television sets and things appear and cars that weren't made then but for the most part the clothing and the production design and everything like that is something that could have existed when the comic books were written well, and I, funnily enough i i made a similar note but i was going with the 80s i it felt very 80s to me uh, yeah again was like there's a bit i think is again it's the second film where peter parker's wearing this like body warmer thing he looks like martin mcfly yeah. <laughs> and he's got his skateboard and, and like that sort of whatever his you know his hoverboard whatever it was. Okay, so shall we get into these films? We've sort of done a lot of broad strokes here. Shall we? Let's start. Let's talk about that first film. Let's break it down a little bit. Yeah, what's the first one about, Sol? It's about what an hour and forty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Toby Maguire. So dweeby nerd kid that um, certainly I could relate to. I don't know about you guys. Uh, <laughs> loser at high school. I was incredibly popular, I'll have you know. Fancies this, this girl, <laughs> and he's he's good at doing photography, and then he gets bitten by a spider, and it gives him superpowers, and the powers of a spider. And this is another thing, I, I'm going to have to talk about how great Sam Raimi is again here, because in the comics, and all the other iterations of Spider-Man by extension, uh, the webbing is an artificial construct, yeah. and the idea is that Peter Parker is this... Tony Stark kind of super genius who mm -hmm. is able to just build gadgets on the fly. I think one of the smartest things that Sam Raimi did was just say, no, what the fuck's that about? He's been bitten by a spider. He's got spider powers. That should be one of his powers. Like, uh, why is yeah. this? Because the idea that he's a super genius on top of that is just a bit rich. And, and it's something that I think makes a lot more sense. Um, the the idea of him being a super genius makes a lot more sense in the context of a comic book universe. So I think mm. the upcoming Spider-Man film in the in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where Tony Stark's even in the film, will make sense because there's loads of characters there who are just super intelligent, and there's all sorts of crazy gadgets and things. It's not quite as difficult to swallow the idea but mm. these films and the amazing spider-man films are largely meant to be set in reality for the most part and this extraordinary thing happens to an ordinary guy and 
I think if he was, you know, if, if we're meant to expect that he's also just gone out and built this incredible bit of technology that, like, the military would, you know, spend millions on, this high school kid, it, it's ridiculous. And I, I think that sort of streamlining that Sam Raimi does that just cuts to the important things and the what you're there to see is, is just another example of why he's so great. But anyway, so in the plot, yeah, he's bitten by a spider that makes him super-powered because it's a weird spider with... They've done experiments on it, and he gets spider powers. He becomes a superhero, and there's a bad guy who has got some different superpowers, and they have a fight. (laughs) Mm. And that's pretty much it, really. And there's a whole load of relationship teen angst thrown in for for flavor, which I, I do think is part of why these films work so well. I do think they're very much the um, the human story told on a superhero backdrop rather than mm. just an overt superhero film. And, um, Danny Elfman's music. Oh, I do love it. It's brilliant. Isn't mm. it? like his, mm. It's very Danny Elfman. It's fairly generic Danny Elfman, but it's really strong generic Danny Elfman. Like it, it, Every scene is so mm. well scored and, and I love the theme I know a lot of people think it's one of his blander superhero themes but I, I think it's great I think it's got so much heart and wonder to it and it, it really like amps me up for the, at the start of the films when it, it starts playing and then you get that like drumming and the oh that's the theme from Lion King 2 isn't it oh yeah sorry you know they made you know they made the Marvel logo for this film. Uh yeah. That's in front of all those Marvel oh, really? films. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But Raimi and um uh Danny Elfman actually did properly fall out on the second film, didn't they? They did. Yeah. Uh, I, I, well, I don't know if it was the second one or the third one because it was the third film that he like didn't do. I think it was the second one because from what I heard, um, Sam Raimi was like, he'd put some temporary music on the soundtrack which was from Hellraiser, I think. Yeah, and he got, he got like, too in love with it. and Yeah, and he was like, can you make it make it sound like that? Make it sound like that? And Daniel Elfman was like, oh, you fucking like that sound so much. Why don't you just go and hire that guy? And so he did. Yeah. And yeah. I think I'm not sure if he's credited or not, but it's, oh, what's the guy's name? Uh, is it so Christopher Young? Because he did the third one. Uh, oh, it is him. Yeah, because he did Hellraiser. <laughs> they, yeah, they they fell out and they've since patched things up and worked together oh. on things like Oz the Great and Powerful and stuff like that, uh. which uh, is the same thing that happened between Danny Elfman and Tim Burton at some point. So I do mm. get the impression that he's a bit of a volatile mm. guy, perhaps. I, like, I did like Willem Dafoe in general, like the bit where he's talking to himself in the mirror and he's doing the character changes, that was really nice. That bit is one of my favourite, yeah, I, I absolutely love that scene. It's so simple, it's just an actor, like, going for it, talking to himself in the mirror with a split personality, and he, he's just mm. such a great actor that he pulls it off, and it's was it so... Was it- it's so it just captures you when you're watching it. He's such a brilliant actor. And in this film he he's playing this dual role so well because he is 
warm and like fatherly to Peter. He's this kind of surrogate father, and you do get this real sense of warmth from him. But the, but it's always like you're walking on ice, and any second he can split. Just like he could change and just become this terrifying manic guy screaming at you, and he and he does that so well mm. as well. And mm. it's both sides of the coin portrayed. You know, one second he's this kind of William H Macy lovely old man and the next he's this evil monster like screeching and it's just and he's fucking ripped as well <laughs> was this this is before lord of the rings one isn't it with because Gollum does the same thing just about but it's about the, i mean it, it wasn't it wasn't roughly the same well, it might it must be have just made at the same time didn't they? Yeah. yeah oh another thing i i frigging love i'm just gonna list things i really love just that sam raimi's brilliant for there's that explosion in the army airbase, and then the transition in the edit is to all those uh, mortarboard hats at the graduation being thrown in the air. Uh, yeah, yeah. Isn't that such a great transition? Yeah, yeah. It's fucking great. That's why I, I love Sam Raimi for that. I love the Green Goblin skeleton bomb. You know when he throws that bomb at those guys and they're just skeletonized and it's just these skeletons stood there that then just fall down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is brilliant like it could have just been an explosion most people would have just been like yeah he throws a bomb and it's an explosion but no they they throw a bomb and it's this incredibly imaginative very striking idea and again it just adds to how inventive these films feel and why i like them i've got one more thing to point out and that is aunt may's line uh you're not superman you know now i think that line's brilliant but i reckon calvin hates it for some reason I didn't hate that so much as I hate the bit when uh, Willem Dafoe breaks in during her prayer and he's like, finish it. It's just, it's really hammy and over the top. And oh, it's but like, Willem Dafoe is playing it like a Yeah, 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 but it, it makes like, me cringe. Like, it's I, it's I, not even a good hammy moment. Uh, I think Willem Dafoe is so great in these. I, I, I think he's great. I, I Highlight of his career for me, which I'm sure he'd be very unhappy to hear. Yeah, I prefer him coming blood in. Uh, what's that Lars von Trier film that he's in? <laughs> God, Antichrist. <laughs> yeah, Antichrist, yeah. Oh, God. Chaos reigns. <laughs> that's what the fox says. What does the fox say? Chaos reigns. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone must have made that on YouTube. Yeah, I was just thinking, I've never actually seen that. But, uh, you know, someone surely must have made it. Is there, what's the Venn diagram of... That song and that film. <laughs> Probably not massive, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so you want to move on to the next one, I suppose? Or... Sure. Spider-Man yeah. 2. I suppose I need to preempt this with um, admitting that the second film is basically the first film again. Um, Mad uh, Scientist, well, like, yeah, I mean, accidentally yeah, but Frankensteins yeah, himself and his hubris well, kind of it... turns him into a villain, but he's kind of a conflicted good guy with like this weird split personality thing going on and well it's like a lot of superhero films that you know a lot of sequels basically just do the same thing but change up some of the elements so it didn't bother me but i think the reason it gets away with it because i i love spider-man 2 i think it's better than the first one I, I think it's fantastic um i think the reason it gets away with it is the human side of it the not super powered part of, side of things is um still moving forward and you're developing these characters on that front so the backdrop's largely the same but just done with more finesse and 
just generally done better than it was done in the first film but obviously the human story is still moving forward so you don't feel like you're just being spoon-fed the same thing again what's the story behind alfred molina getting this part <laughs> doesn't it just it seems like a really it's weird choice bizarre, like he does it, it great it's, it's a great actor yeah but it, it's just a weird choice i love him i loved him when i was younger in this i pick up on the fact that he's british doing an american accent and not keeping his yeah. accent very well a lot more now I don't know. I, I think it just speaks to, the, the, again, the cast in this film, just like I was saying with the first one. I've already spoken about a load of them, but uh, another one I want to point out, little almost cameos, but just people being cast in, you know, interesting actors and in interesting little roles. Donna Murphy is Alfred Molina's wife in the film. You know that is Calvin? Uh, no, no. It's uh, what she called Mother Gothel, is it? Entangled? Oh wow! People like that popping up in this film all over the place. It's brilliant. How good, right? Just just to set the tone of the film when it opens. Yeah, that Mm. he's got to deliver these pizzas in half an hour, or the pizzas are free. But he's Spider Man. Yeah, that's such a perfect means of just establishing like what's going on with this character, what like the two sides of his life, but it's kind (laughs) of comedic (laughs) and stupid and low stakes. it did it. It did it. Yeah. Okay. But at the same time, it annoyed me. And I think it, it's not the fault of the film. It's just the way that these stories have to go. But it was Which just like, for that... God's sake, you're a superhero. Like you're delivering pizzas. You're fannying about. He's he's trying to make rent as a photographer, but J.K. Simmons won't let him. J. Jonah Jameson won't pay him enough. That was the other thing. Why does he keep selling pictures to the newspaper who keeps calling Spider-Man a bad guy? It's the only newspaper in New York, Alan. No, it's not. It is. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. There's only one newspaper. It's the only one not owned by Rupert Murdoch. Even in the story world, it's not. He's got a monopoly on the industry. It's all J.J. Even Jameson. in the world of the film, it's not, because there's other papers that we see them. <laughs> they don't pay as well. Well, but the whole point is that he doesn't pay enough. Yeah, but so they, they, they pay. it pays better than the other ones. <laughs> silly. You haven't met P. Peter Painsome from the... The guy from the New Yorker in charge of that, he's right piece of work. He's even worse than J. Jonah Jameson. Well, he's got all these financial problems. It's like, your best friend's a fucking multimillionaire. Will you just sort of get a loan, for Christ's sake? Or at least, like, you know, yeah, ask but him for a favour. but doesn't yeah. Harry seem like a really kind of slimy guy who'd be like, and what am I going to get in return for this money? And he'd have to be like, well, when I... When I sell, when I get a job as a photographer, and he'd be like, "I want, I want ninety percent shares in you as a photographer for the rest of your life." <laughs> I just don't think it'd go down very well. Mm. And it would just it would muddle. It would make mm. things even more complicated when he finds out that he killed his dad as well. Well, that because then he'd be conf- would add it, more things, wouldn't it? No, because he'd be he he's too much of a businessman, and he wouldn't. He'd be like, "Well, he did kill my dad, but I own ninety percent stake in him as a." photographer from a business point of view so i better keep him alive and there wouldn't be any conflict <laughs> we should have hired him as his personal photographer or something like so that it doesn't seem like charity and it sort of makes it feel a bit more like legit <laughs> have they ever done that on fraser calvin Fra- fraser hires niles as his assistant as like a charity uh, and then he starts <sighs> making like unreasonable demands They've done episodes similar to that, like, Frasier went back into private practice, and uh, they had offices next door to each other, and Frasier was, like, helping Niles out, but Niles didn't like it very much, and, yeah, and, and all that. I, um, I do quite like Alfred Molina. 
Uh, he's probably my favourite villain of the whole Spider-Man mm. series. He's good. The arms are cool. Well, I do like how they, they brush over, like, he's he's about to unveil this amazing, like, new power source. Yeah. And then it's just like, hang on, you've invented these... These incredible arms. arms. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Should so, we deal with that first? <laughs> like, <laughs> let's sell that technology and we'll use the money to protect this other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that is silly. I'll give you that. They're, they're a perfect example of why the the way these films really like embrace practical effects as much as possible like within reason and just how much it adds to it because most of what you see with those tentacles is like puppeting like work puppeteering mm. they're they're puppets with people off screen moving them around and i think it really you could definitely tell the difference like when a, when it yeah and it lights a cigar in his mouth or whatever it is yeah. like you can tell that it's practical effect you you can feel it that it's real and and i think Raimi was instructing the puppeteers to kind of give the tentacles like characters essentially and i do think you you do get a sense of like personality from them that i don't think would come across if it was just cgi tentacles the whole way um dylan connor uh, what's he called dylan baker as dr connor's Oh, I feel so bad for him. I was going to say, don't you feel really awful? He, I feel so bad watching him in these films. Cause yeah. That poor guy. Yeah. Hang on, what? Uh, what? Why, what? Well, he's playing Dr. Connors, who obviously is the lizard yeah. in The Amazing Spider-Man. Mm. And they were so clearly setting him up mm. to be yeah. the lizard in a future film. Just giving him these little parts in Spider-Man 2 and 3 as this sort of weirdly yeah. one-armed guy. I just feel so bad for him that that never happened. Not only did it not happen... But he cut his arm off especially for it. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But the first villain they go for when they reboot the franchise is his villain, just to add salt. Yes! Like, rub salt in the wound. Uh, That's what upsets me so much. It's like... I don't know, I mean, fair enough if you set him up in one film to bring him back in the next one and he's the villain, yeah. but the fact that they take two films to set him up is just... Oh, I feel so bad for the guy, and he seems like a lovely man. Yeah, but think about how much he uh, he earned doing those few scenes. I mean, probably not that much. I mean... Either, right? If they, if they were like, yeah, we contracted you in for three films because we we're going to make you a big character later on, it would be all right. Anyway, the second film was a... Really big hit, wasn't it? It was. Did it make yeah. more than the first one, or? I believe it almost certainly did. But mm. I mean, beyond that, it was it was critically very well received, and it really. I don't know if it kind of started the idea, but certainly cemented the idea for a while that the the second in a superhero franchise was always the best film. I think X Men Two mm. was part of that, and Spider Man Two, and the Dark Knight as well. And it certainly was this rule of thumb for a while. It's kind of been ruined with uh, more recent sequels, but um, mm. there's a lot of great set pieces in it. That bit on the train and the the bit with the sun thing, and it's all good. Yeah, I love the action. I just didn't love the uh, the bit where all the New Yorkers on the train are like, "We're gonna keep your secret, Spider-Man." You know, I really like that. And watching it again, I really love how sincere and earnest these films are i think i'm too cynical well this is this is something that wonder woman is currently being like praised to high hell for people are going out of their way to go on about how refreshing it is to have a film that's sincere and hopeful and like wears its heart on its sleeve and th- these films were doing it 10 years ago like it's just that dc's come along and 
poisoned the well and <laughs> made it so you can't do that anymore and everything has to be sarcastic and um you know that bit at the end when dr octopus drowns and you see him floating in the water mm-hmm. yes that that shot is entirely cgi really from yeah huh isn't that remarkable for a film from 2004 to have like a full human being like on screen and a load of other stuff 100% CGI generated. Every time I watch that scene I'm like blown away by it. When you yeah. know it's CGI generated you can kind of see but it's still damned hmm. impressive. Well yeah, I didn't know. I mean obviously there's some special effects that work but I didn't think it was entirely uh didn't it strike you watching again that the end of this film would now take place during the end credits if this had been made today? Which which the very end were when when Harry Osborn is in his house and then he oh here's the like, the no- here's yeah, his yeah, dad yeah. and smashes a window and his dad's oh, like yeah. avenge me yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah you're right yeah <laughs> I mean I I love that it's such a great it gets you pumped for the next one I mm. remember there was like real speculation at the time as to whether or not he was actually gonna pick up the mantle of his father or if they were gonna play it like he you know doesn't want anything to do with his father because now it's explained why what happened the first time round and all that sort of thing and there there was one little detail i remember someone picked up on this online back in like 2005 or something and was saying if you watch the wedding scene at the end uh, harry osborne's wearing a green bow tie <laughs> and everyone was saying like fuck off nerd green so what and it's like <laughs> you know that's that obviously is a very conscious, like, bit of direction on the part of, like, the costume designer and Sam Raimi. Mm. Like, that's obviously intentional. Did you take it personally I... when they told you to fuck off? <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's it. I love the second one. All right, things are going to get interesting now. Spider-Man 3. Uh, it was my favourite of the original Sam Raimi films when I first what? saw it at the cinema, what? and it still is. What? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the funnest. Okay. It's the funniest. It's. Huh. I don't care if it's like, I. You know, I. A lot of people say that it's bad. I don't think it's bad. I just think they're having more fun with it than the previous ones. And I'm. I. I wanted to go last because I was going to come out swinging, like coming to bat for this film because I, oh, right. I think oh. it's one of the most unfairly picked on, thrown under the bus films. It's really not that bad. I wouldn't no, no, no. say it's bad. It's 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 messy, and I do think it's the weakest of the three substantially. But I don't think it's bad. <laughs> well, I mm. uh, I agree with Calvin that is it, it feels like they're having fun with it, and I liked elements of that. But there's too much of the rest of the film that just doesn't work, and so yeah, it was definitely the weakest of the three for me. Hmm. I I would love to see this film in an alternate reality where Sony weren't quite so like shitty. I'm sure you guys are vaguely aware of the behind-the-scenes issues with these films and stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, from what I understand, Venom was forced into this film by yeah. executives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, essentially, Sam Raimi doesn't like Venom, has no interest in him. Venom is a much more recent addition to the Spider-Man universe than the... Mm. Like, Raimi came to the character as a fan in the, like, comic books from, I suppose, when he was younger, so, like, the... 60s 70s 80s and venom i believe was a much more recent edition i'm going to assume he was introduced in like the 80s maybe even the 90s so he just didn't really have any resonance for raimi 
so he had no interest in doing him. Raimi wanted to do Sandman, so he did Sandman. Avi Arad, producer, and other people um, put masses of amounts of pressure on Raimi to include Venom because the fans love Venom, and he's a real like popular character, and they knew it would shift toys and things. Venom was basically forced into the film. On top of that, they set the release dates for these films like two years in advance. They're like, you know, this film's coming out on the 12th of June, two years from now or whatever. You know what I mean? They set a specific Mm. day. And it it became very clear during production that like they could really do with a bit more time to figure out what was a very complicated plot with loads of shit going on at once. But they just kind of pressed ahead with the deadlines and everything. And Hmm. so I, I think... I think it's I think it's a solidly entertaining film. It's just very messy and all over the place and busy and there's a lot of very contrived uh elements in the writing yeah. that I can't really defend yeah. on any level. I also think that um I, I've spoken about the cast in the first two films, how much I love them. That's kind of gone in this one. I don't get a sense of all the smaller roles being filled with like fun, exciting little bit players anymore. Uh, Thomas Hayden. No, what was his name? The guy played Thomas Hayden Church. Yeah, the Sandman. No, um, Topher Grace played Topher Grace. Awful, awful Sandman Topher is. Grace, as he's known. Yeah, he's he's just like he's just not great. Like mm. Thomas Hayden Church was all right. I think he's worked with Sam Raimi before. And I think yeah, I like him. But well, it, it feels it like, and obviously this is what you've just said, but there was far too much going on here. Too many characters. Mm. if you'd taken Venom out of it and given Sandman more time, I think that could have worked because I don't think that worked. I actually think Venom is probably a better villain because in the, in the sense that where you see the, the dark side of, of Peter Parker and all that, it, that yeah. works much better from emotional conflict. When, when he gets taken over by Venom, Black Pete, basically, Emo Pete, easily my favourite bit of the entire franchise. Oh, when he's yeah. doing the strut walk <laughs> and they're just totally playing it for laughs and it's it, it's so funny. One of the main reasons people don't like this film is that sequence. They do not like emo Peter Parker. They don't like that dark Peter Parker is a dweeb. But that is yeah. that is true to the character. Peter Parker's dark side shouldn't be like some murderous evil thing. Yeah. It should be a dickhead. It's a dork who's suddenly got confidence. And I think that's clear in the film, but I think a lot of people watching it just laugh at it rather than with it. Uh, I think a lot of people don't get Sam Raimi's sense of humour, quite frankly. I, I am completely, completely on board with his sense of humour. I think he's really funny, but it, it, he really clicks with my own sensibilities in terms of sense of humour. I think a lot of people view this the same way they view Adam West's Batman, in the this is a self-aware, bordering on self-parody film, and it's it's trying to be funny and silly, and it, it isn't given the credit it deserves for that. People just look at it and think, what a bunch of idiots, what were they playing at? But just like with the 60s Batman, which was a self-aware mockery of the 1940s serial, but most people now view without that context and think, what the fuck were they thinking? This is ridiculous. The same's true here. People don't get that you can kind of... I mean, it's, it's the idea of self-parody, really. It's the idea that you can laugh at something and with it at the same time that I think people struggle with. And it's absolutely what I get out of Army of Darkness and most of the Evil Dead movies, to be honest. And it's absolutely what I get out of this film. 
because it's ludicrous and and if you need proof that it's like meant to be funny you only have to look at the reactions of the extras around him it's not like he's walking down the street being this cool guy like yeah yeah. and you're meant to think what a cool guy because everyone walking past him is looking like what the fuck is this and all the extras have clearly been directed to like behave Mm. like normal people like what the fuck is this (laughs) Um, so you got you got venom. That's the internal turmoil, really, and then it becomes an external thing. But mm. but that never feels very genuine. They're competing over a girl or something, and then like and then her dad. She's in his class, and then her dad's the police commissioner. It's like all these coincidences that obviously from the comic books, but it just doesn't work. And and he's such a such a shit character. I mean, I don't mind any of those coincidences. I think the really bad contrivances are. Uh, there's a meteorite that just happens to land next to Spider-Man carrying an alien. That happened, right? And I thought, right, it's going to get explained later <laughs> that it was someone yeah. shot it there deliberately, or some, it's going to come up later. And when it didn't, I mean, I was very upset about that, I must admit. But then, but then it's a perfect example of why this is a messy, mixed bag of a film for me, rather than an outright bad one, because I do love that scene and how much of an homage it is to, like, the blob and these 1950s b-movie horror films where a meteorite just lands in lover's lane and but yeah but if it was just if it was if it was the first film and that was the start of a character it would be fine it's it's ridiculous It, it should have been two characters we'd never seen before it hitches a ride back to new york on one of them and then it like consciously chooses Peter Parker because he's like a it sees him. Spider-Man who's yeah like, oh yeah it chooses Spider-Man it sees this much stronger person and goes all oh, right I'm having that body or what's his name the astronaut from the previous film returns back with some weird you know thing from space and that would have made more sense there's so many things my understanding is that they were originally going to make Spider-Man 3 and Spider-Man 4 back to back at one point and it was going to be a big two-part film and the reason they didn't do that is because when they were writing it sam raimi basically felt that he couldn't find an adequate place to be the the end of part one start of Hmm. part two in a way that would feel like two satisfying movies so they ended up just making one long film and i do whilst i i'm glad he didn't just put out part one of a thing and it just didn't end and what have you because you know i don't like that i do think it's kind of a shame they didn't work on making three and four work as part of a bigger whole like that because it it needs more time spent on explaining things and making it all work and make sense and there's only one thing better than a snooty french maitre d and that's a snooty Ooh. French maitre d' played by Bruce Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, really I've been I've been saving this, but I mean, I I've got to say, I I love him in these <laughs> films altogether. I I like to think that it's one character he's playing, in, <laughs> yeah. like the same yeah, in the yeah, franchise, yeah. and he's just he's gone from job to job. And now he's pretending to be putting on a like, French accent to get yeah. the job because because <laughs> the character's clearly not meant to be French. You know, he, he has the line where it just for no reason it goes. I am French. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's. I just wanted to, to, yeah, to take this film discussion into some very Alan-y territory now. Because um, this film raises some very interesting ideas about the, the soul and the nature of human existence. Because Sandman is, like, 
he's a load of sand, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but but then he goes into like dormant sand lying around, and he like gains control of it. So, what is Sandman? Is he is he like one sentient grain of sand that has the ability to control sand around him? If so, which one? How does that work? Or is he just like an, a consciousness that can float around but possess bits of sand? Like, or or is it just sand? Can he possess rock? Um, you can cont- occasionally take control of large bodies of sand. Yeah, like how big do the grains get before he's not got enough power to pull them together? I guess is. Yeah. Yeah. I I actually I looked into this because I was getting confused by it, and apparently in the comic books he is indeed. Uh, one sentient grain of sand. Oh, really? <laughs> because, because there's an issue where apparently he's trying to get into the Sahara Desert to like <laughs> become giant and massive or something, and Peter Parker stops him and isolates the grain of sand that is conscious and then interrogates it, <laughs> tortures it <laughs> wow. to get information. So I need to read that. I haven't read it yet, but uh, sounds very interesting. I never liked that Sandman can like color himself in. Did that bother you? What, in his clothes and stuff like that? Yeah, he, like, why can... He, he, he forms stuff out of sand, all right. And then, like, the sand turns whatever colour he wants it to turn. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to this with Electro in a bit, so... Uh... <laughs> you know that bit when James Franco's housekeeper shows up and explains everything? Oh, yeah. I, that was weird casting as well, because it felt like that was... Didn't feel like that was an actor, did it? Is he, was no, he... that's like that seems to be one of Sam Raimi's like mates that he puts in all his films. Yeah. I think they worked with each other on a. I'm not sure what film it was, but he put him in one of his earlier films, and he's basically put him in every film he's made since in a small role. It was, and weird. that guy in Spider-Man Three is only that guy in Spider-Man Three because he was playing the guy in the previous two films where he only had like one line. There's a new edit of this film that's been released and then yanked very briefly at the time of recording. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. What is that? That I, I don't know. It's, it's, they're yeah. calling it the editor's cut. There's already like Spider-Man 2.1 and stuff like that on DVD. These weird like re-edits of the film. But um, my understanding is it's just re-edited and it's it's got some footage that's not in the original film, but the running time is lower overall. I don't know if Sam Raimi went back and was involved or if they did it without him or what. But one thing I do know is apparently... One of the things that's come out as a result of it is apparently that scene with the housekeeper was originally intended to be taking place entirely within James Franco's head, which explains why it's so (laughs) contrived and stupid. And for whatever reason, like, along the way in the edit, they just, like, made it be real. Mm. Which is weird, but... Yeah. Hmm. Apparently, actually, um, Sam Raimi, when he makes a film, he gets two editors to make a rough cut initially, independently of each other. And then he watches both versions, like, back to back and kind of merges the two, like, the best bits from each cut into one cut. It's cool, that, isn't it? How do the money men feel about that? <laughs> Everyone was going to come back for a fourth one, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, Spider Man 4 was greenlit going ahead, moving ahead just like the others were, dated, and then they just turned around out of the blue and were like, we're not doing it, we're rebooting Spider-Man. And it basically, Sam Raimi was well aware of the third film not being up to par and the problems with it. And he basically kept saying with the fourth one, look, like this, 
this needs to be done properly if we're going to do it. It needs to be an apology for the third film. It needs to make <laughs> up for what went wrong there. Well, no, I thought he was going to like mm. uh, he's going to double down, go full <laughs> full Raimi on it. <laughs> well, he was to an extent because he he was adamant that the villain should be the vulture, but the producers don't like that because the vulture's a boring old man who can fly. The vulture is actually the villain they're doing in the upcoming Spider-Man Homecoming film. So obviously, Marvel yeah, played by Michael Keaton. Yeah, they got completely like deep into pre-production i think the film got delayed once or twice slightly because sam raimi needed more time to work out make sure it was going to work and eventually he just apparently it was very you know um mutually respectful so they say and he just said to them look i can't make this film within this time frame so i suggest you just call it quits here and make your reboot that i know you've been prepping (laughs) for when i step away from these films and they were hmm. like, yeah, we'll do that then. Well, that was the thing. Like, I remember it came about super quickly that, like, as it was like literally Sam Raimi was out. And then the next day it was like, well, that's fine because we're rebooting it anyway. And we've got this director and this cast. And it was like... I think they announced the reboot with the news that he was stepping away from it. I think it was simultaneously oh, right. announced from what I remember. Oh, I might wow. be misremembering. But yeah, it's, it's bizarre because, I mean, I, I stand by it. I think that was such a fucking stupid decision on Sony's part to reboot. Sam Raimi steps away from the film. You hire a new director. Tobey Maguire and everyone step away because they don't want to do it without Sam Raimi. You hire a new cast. You've you've Mm. got this world to play in. Let someone else play with it. You've got so much left to explore there. Don't just wipe the slate clean. And if you do reboot it, don't hard reboot it, soft reboot it. Don't just give us the same film again as Spider-Man 1. Give us a new adventure with the same characters. But Am I right in thinking... Am I right in thinking that in the comic books, like, there's a different Spider-Man that's not Peter Parker, like someone else yes. takes on the same... Do that. Correct. There Just is do that. Miles Morales. Well, not only that, not only do they do the exact same thing there, but they even pick a villain who is the same thing as the first two Spider-Man films. They, like, yeah, maybe there was a feeling of we've got to do the lizard because we've been teasing it for the last two films. But we've already had a film where a mad scientist injects himself with something and it doesn't save the world like he was hoping and it turns him evil and we don't need that again so soon it it infuriates me and the thing is if you're gonna do the same exact thing again find a new spin find a new like take on it Mm. don't do Mm. it in the exact same way which is what the amazing spider-man is it's a poor emulation of sam raimi's films the music by james horner is a shit like version of danny elfman's score it's mm. so like similar. Everything about it is the the opening credits are the same. The everything about it is like emulating those earlier films. It's not standing on its own two feet. The only things it seems to do that seem to be trying to set it apart are there's some fucking nonsense backstory with Peter Parker's parents being spies or something. That, oh, I hate that's it all almost that. entirely yeah. left on the cutting room floor. Because they, they shot so much stuff for that in the first and second film that didn't even make it in there. that um, no one wants any of that anyway. So there's that. And there is the fact that he's now got these artificial web shooters like he did in the comic. Which is just stupid. The idea that this character is also a fucking genius who builds this thing in a 30 second montage that is then mm. just glossed over for the rest of the film. It, it's fucking ludicrous. I really fucking hate The Amazing Spider-Man. I think it's just (laughs) 
on it, if it had come out and it had been the first film, it would be a kind of mediocre mm. film with some good stuff in it. But as it is, a reboot of a film that was made 10 years earlier, it's just unforgivable. I cannot stand it. I, I think it's shit. And the only saving grace it has is in Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, who yeah. are yeah. fantastic. Mm. Martin Sheen's pretty good. I love Martin I love Sheen. Sally Field. Yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you heard what she said about the second film? Or these no. films in general? Uh, I believe her quote was, you can't fit 10 pounds of shit into a five pound bag. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But I, I agree with you, Saul. Like, for, for me, the uh, yeah, what, what made this film stand out was the emotional storyline. I felt that it was taken more seriously, had more depth. And I think that was mostly down to the actors. Uh, Emma Stone, fantastic. Garfield, I'm not quite convinced by him, but he's obviously got some talent. I don't know, what can you say? It's the same thing. And it's it's just, like I say, so much of it's emulating the earlier film. It's not even, like, going off on a tangent and doing it differently. You know, compare Batman Begins to Tim Burton's Batman. They are worlds apart. And that's what this should have been. But instead, it's just this shitty, inferior thing that we saw done better less than ten years ago. It doesn't have that same sense of fun that Raimi brings to it. It feels like a studio product. And I know that was part of the idea they they hired mark webb mm. fresh off of 500 days of summer so his his only experience is on a relatively small rom-com they hired him knowing they were going to get a director they could control and tell exactly what to do the studio execs and wouldn't be getting in the way like Raimi was doing i'll say as well in terms of casting it's only these lead actors that do it for me. Everyone else, I think, is oh, inferior. Risa Fan. Risa Fan is a is a great charismatic actor, and in this, he's just there's nothing there, is there? He's not giving anything to him do. Up, they've dressed him up like Stephen Merchant, and <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's just he brings nothing to it. Dennis Leary's no James Cromwell, even though James Cromwell didn't have anything to do in the, his film. Yeah. He still brought more to it than yeah, Dennis Leary. Dennis Leary, he can do that one bit, can't he? But there's no depth. When he does it, he has a death scene and he's like, leave my daughter out of it because you're going to get her killed. She does, by the way. Um, there's, there's, no, <laughs> there's no power behind that, is there? There's no emotional force behind it because it's Dennis Leary. It's yeah. like you need... Isn't it, isn't it weird to think, Alan, that there's a parallel universe somewhere where Bill Hicks didn't die and he was, like, taking on <laughs> shit roles in superhero movies and romantic interests and stuff? I can't, you just can't see that, can you? I, I, I liked, there was a little moments I liked. There's the scene in the car with the boy where he has to, to rescue say, him. I was about to say, that is a standout sequence that works really well. And generally, with that, with this character, this incarnation of the character, mm. they seem to try and make him more emo- like a human side, yeah. where he talks to people and the kids. And they, they do a great job. And they, I that think. seemed a very conscious effort, and, and that was one of the few things they changed. Um, and and it's just every he goes wrestling again in this film. For fuck's sake! Like they they even have a scene where Risifans is like arguing with himself in the mirror, and all it does is highlights how much like. <laughs> how less good this is than the first time we saw it because Willem Dafoe was phenomenal at that and Risa Fans isn't that good at doing oh, it and it's not it just framed it gives well. nothing in this performance yeah and it's not shot it was... as well and it's just not then there's just so many little things that bother me like the first time Peter Parker properly tests out his web shooters he's built he jumps off a skyscraper <laughs> falls to his death <laughs> to test them now in Sam Raimi's films he kind of does that. He shoots a web across like 
the road to a billboard over the other side of the street but he's like got it in his hands and it's like he can feel that it's physically attached before he like jumps off it's not quite the leap of faith that we see in this film there's that bizarre entirely cgi pov sequence where peter parker's running around the city and it's just like a video game yeah oh yeah i I kind of like i like the idea of throwing in a bit of pov but yeah, it didn't look quite good enough, did it? But don't it looked... don't CGI the whole thing. Like, do what they did in the Raimi films and like wire up a camera and then move it like r- remotely across the city and then speed up the footage or something like that. It, it... That was another major difference. You felt the reliance on CGI with the oh, cityscapes massively. and stuff. Although I will say, what I what I preferred about this Spider Man was his movement. Uh, and this is obviously it comes from it being CGI. It was like a less human movement. It was more kind of quick insect-like movements uh, and crawling up the walls, which I liked. I thought that was more better characterization. but you can only do that because he's not, it's not a real person. It's CGI. Uh, Dennis Leary, an arrest warrant for Spider-Man, which is like completely unjustified to say it's meant to be after he's just saved that kid on the bridge. And that's what's justified it in terms of the character in the film so over the top angry policeman stereotype in this film it's fucking shit lazy writing and speaking of shit lazy writing the most unforgivable bit of fucking awful writing i've i can remember seeing in a film is in this actually which is they need the lizard to figure out that spider-man is peter parker so he looks at peter parker's camera and oh look there's a sticker on it that conveniently says property of peter parker even though that's not didn't they do that in the simpsons yeah but the simpsons (laughs) spent the first act of the episode setting up that bart's been given a label maker and then he's labeling everything and like it's it's like they go out of their way to justify it and make a joke of it as well Whereas this film doesn't. You never see any labels like that anywhere else in the film. You never get a sense that that's... It's not even in line with this character. It's something Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker would probably do, but I don't know about Andrew Garfield with his skateboard and his cool haircut. (laughs) And? And when you consider... When you consider all they had to do is have him look through the camera and see a photograph that, like, confirms that it's him or something like that. Just unforgivably bad writing. And then there's all this... After the film ends, there's, like, 15 minutes of extra stuff with, like, Peter Parker and Gwen just being like, oh, you come into my dad's funeral in the rain with black umbrellas. Oh, (laughs) that over-the-head shot of black umbrellas in the rain. Oh, dear me. (laughs) And that end credit sequence as well. Because they were like, oh, well, the Avengers and stuff, they're big now, so we've got to have a credit sequence. What are we going to do? Well, let's just have some random man no one cares about talking to our shit version of the lizard. And he says, leave Peter Parker alone, not setting anything up whatsoever. Brilliant. Well done. <laughs> anyway, that's that's it for the first one for me. Okay, yeah, let's move on to the next one then. Um, second one for me. Um, I know this is generally regarded as the low point of the franchise. For me, it's a huge, huge improvement over the first. Yeah, I'm surprised to hear that. I didn't think it... Because I know it's obviously the film that killed this rebooted universe in its tracks, despite it making a shit ton of money and all that sort of thing. But yeah, it is regarded as the low point, as you say. I wish they'd just started with this and not done the the previous one. This film is a a fucking mess. It's not great, Mm. but hey, it's trying something new. It's doing something vaguely interesting. It goes into it goes into full comic book mode, doesn't it? Yeah. 
And and some of it works. It's like it completely embraces that, which I don't like, but yeah, it's at least it's doing something new. There's, a, there's a, like, again, all the stuff with Peter Parker's backstory, I hate it. I don't need it. Most of it's cut. It feels like a weird strand from an earlier draft. I, I suppose it is. All that stuff on the airplane at the start, load of bullshit. Paul Giamatti, what was he thinking? <laughs> what was Paul yeah. thinking? <laughs> uh, similarly, actually, what was Jamie Foxx thinking? Because yeah, he's totally wasted in this. It's not. It doesn't get a chance to do anything. Whilst I quite like what he does here, playing Dwayne Dibley, I am <laughs> amazed that he was on board with it. <laughs> oh, why? Why? Jamie Fox likes to do a bit of comedy. He's, he's he's all up for that. Yeah, motherfucker Jones. That was him, wasn't it? <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I can see it. What I really hate about that character is when he's having his um, mind struggles or whatever they are, and they they play that song underneath <laughs> I it, like and it's that. like he's got this they weird. They will laugh at you. I, I what, love what, that. What's it going like? I can't even remember the tune. It's this weirdest bit of film scoring where there's just like someone talking like this under the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like so that though because it's because it, it's like, it's, it's actually it. like. The film's actually trying to do something new and interesting. Like it, whether or not it works that well, I don't know. But it's it's mm. not just more Danny Elfman ripoff music. It's it's doing something, even if it's like a bit weird and maybe misjudged. Um, the cast in this film again. There's so many actors who just show up because they're setting them up for sequels, and it doesn't like. Yeah. Bj Novak's just randomly in there as like some guy from Oscorp who apparently becomes a villain in later co- comic book issues. And um, what's her name? Felicia Hardy, the one from Rogue One. Felicity Jones. Technically, what's the difference between them setting up actors here and it feeling obvious, whereas Dylan Baker in Spider-Man 2 and 3 doesn't feel like an obvious sort of <sighs> I think it's setup. because I think Dylan Baker in Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3, I think they needed that character and they were like, we're mm. going to have this mentor Peter goes to and he discusses it. Well, why not? Why don't we make it one of his you know, college professors? Oh, we can make it this character from the comics yeah. that we like. That's a really organic way of making that work. Whereas mm. here it feels like, how can we crowbar this character into the film? And it's just not as... There's no reason for, for Felicia Hardy to be in the film other than she becomes yeah. a black cat down the line. I don't like... Um, you know that kid from Mad Men who plays... Harry Osborne. Uh, well, that, yeah, I mean, that's what I was just going to say. I mean, he's terrible. He's really awful. It's a bad character. I'll give him some credit. But that is a bad performance. That's it. He's a step down from James Franco in Spider-Man 3, where James Franco <laughs> visibly wants nothing to do with it in every like, frame. <laughs> Who is he? I've never seen him in anything. Dane DeHaan. Yeah. Isn't he a Mad Men or am I confusing it with something else? He was in um he was in Chronicle. That Chronicle, was his big breakthrough. Yeah. He's not in Mad Men, so What what am I thinking of? I don't know. Oh, I don't even Oh man, I You're obviously thinking of someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Well he's even more shit than I thought then. Wow. So Electro gains powers from like being electrocuted. Like is mm. is this the fifties? <laughs> like what what is like Sorry, I mean, if this is a world where someone can be bitten by a radioactive spider yeah. and get spider powers, then at least that's they're bitten equally... by a genetic thing, and we don't know the like venom and how it works. It's not like the electric eel in the tank bites him; he's electrocuted in a tank full of water, and he happened to fall <sighs> in with a big cable, so he gets really electrocuted, and that somehow turns him into electricity. 
Yeah, I mean, fine, I don't know, Sandman, it's just... At least that was a weird experiment we don't know the ins and outs of. But, yeah, I mean, what annoyed me was that he's, like, wearing, a like, a tailor-made leather suit, like, and then he sucks himself into the sockets and he's not wearing a suit, hmm. and then it comes up. If they said to him, or he said in the film, like, oh, careful with that experimental electricity cable that we've been working on. It's got some weird properties we don't quite understand. Maybe I'd be alright with it. But it's just a big power cable. Oh, God. And also... How does it give him, like, telekinetic powers? I was about to say, how come electricity makes stuff levitate? That's that's my next note. But you know what? For the most part, Electro's powers are very well realised in this film, and I do think they do quite a good job of making a villain of him. He's quite interesting it's certainly a nice break from the mad scientist with a heart of gold thing i have a question about um gwen stacy dying mm-hmm. which is a pretty big deal um does she die because she hits the ground and peter was too late or does she die ah. because he grabs her and she breaks her back from ah. oh is that oh, oh. this this what? is oh, the this oh. is the status <laughs> She snapped her neck because he grabbed hold of a midriff. This is the torment of Spider-Man. This is, in the comics, like, it's meant to be a big, like, it's a big thing. She was his first love interest. They kill her off. And it's this big emotional moment that's completely wasted in this franchise and they can't really do anything with again in film, sadly, because they've fucked it up in this one. Um, But Mm. in the comic books, the big thing that weighs on Peter Parker and makes him all angsty is that he doesn't know if the fall killed her or if it was his webbing ah. that he was trying to save her with that like, it doesn't matter <laughs> it doesn't make any difference she's there no because when no no in because the comic books i don't know it might well make more sense but i i yeah in the context of this film you are absolutely correct it, it's redundant and a moot point and you know when a you Ooh. know when her dad said please leave her out of it because you're going to bring danger onto it and he and he says do you know what i can't have people near me because if people find out who i am they're going to attack those who are near me and he's right and, he, and that so it's his fault he should feel emotional responsibility for that and you can you can that should be part of the conflict of the character like uncle ben because ultimately you can say okay it's not my fault that bad thing happened, but I'm I feel emotionally responsible. Yeah, then then they realised that they'd made a big mess of everything, and no one liked the film, and uh, they made a deal with Marvel that no one anticipated happening, but makes so much sense. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, people. isn't yeah, it? Really is like this sort of corporate. It's it's the biggest thing like this since uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit got Disney and and Looney Tunes characters together in a way that had like never happened now but yeah i mean yeah so alan do you understand what's happening currently with spider-man uh they're tying it into the the avengers somehow i've seen the trailer for the film but yeah yeah do you understand because they've they've just gone ahead recently and made it like so confusing it's even starting to piss me off (laughs) no i don't know the details okay at the the time of recording uh they've re ignited these uh, spin-off films that have been in development, one of which is a Venom movie starring Tom Hardy uh, as Venom. Uh, which Tom is being, Hardy? Which is, yes. Which is being pitched. Huh. It's being pitched as an R-rated horror movie without Spider-Man in it. They've, they're huh. working on the Black Cat film, but it's now a Black Cat and some other female character combo. They're working on a few spin-off movies. They're working on a few of these... Yeah. They're working on a few of these spin-off movies, and they were saying they're going to do it without 
Peter Parker or Spider-Man involved, which is beyond batshit crazy because Venom is like by definition a corruption of Spider-Man. You can't do it without him. It doesn't make any sense. But Marvel are doing their thing with Spider-Man's involvement. Sony are making these Spider-Man films with Marvel's involvement and they're kind of sharing the property and working together to make this stuff work. Now, the press conference or one of the press days, press junkets for the new Spider-Man film, Spider-Man Homecoming, Amy Pascal, one of the execs at Sony and um, Kevin Feige, Feige, whatever he's called, uh, were sat down together and they were talking about these spin-offs and she just starts talking about the Venom movies and saying, well, they're kind of set in the same world, they're kind of adjacent, Uh, you never know, maybe Tom Holland will show up as Spider-Man in them, and Kevin Feige's face is amazing, because it's the first he's heard of it, that's what you can tell, and he's just like, (laughs) what? And it seems like, going forward, the universes are going to be a Venn diagram with all of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films in one circle, all of the Spider-Man Universe films in one circle, and then a little sliver where they overlap in the middle uh, with the Spider-Man standalone movie, Homecoming, the two sequels they're contracted to make for that, and Civil War, and I suppose the upcoming Avengers with Spider-Man in it. So there's going to be like the most complex, convoluted, awkward continuity. Your average moviegoer is not going to understand what the hell is going on. I really hope they kind of make a deal so that they can just bring these other spin-off films into the universe and then like have Marvel working on them so they're not shit because I don't trust Sony to do them on their own terms. Where, where where do we how far down this road do we get before the backlash where people just like we're sick of the universe stuff? Can we just I think have we're some already films? into like, it. I mean, I'm well into it, but I was never I not I don't see myself as a good barometer of the public at large, so I don't know. I, I, I generally they're all very role reviewed and all that kind of thing. Like to be honest, I think Spider Man Homecoming could be the turning point. Have you seen uh, the poster? It's like Iron Man and Robert Downey Jr. is even more prominent on it than Peter Parker. I think the trailer looks great fun. I th- I'm too much Tony to Stark. I'm like I want Tony, but that's that's what's going to set this apart from the previous fucking five Spider Man films. Is that this is the one with Tony Stark in it? And and also, have you guys seen Captain America: Civil War? Oh, I've seen it. Spider Man has a sizable role in that, and it's quite yeah. That's the movie he's introduced in. Yeah, it's quite a cool take on him, and I'm quite intrigued to see more of that Spider Man. To be honest, I think it's different. But I haven't seen that film, so do I go and see this film? Will it make sense to me? Yeah. As an uh, being a yeah, but where at what point do you lose your mainstream audience where they go, oh god, I haven't seen the last seven bits of this fucking franchise. I can't. I'm not going to bother. I don't think it ever matters because I don't think you ever really need to know more than like a quick line of dialogue at the start. Again, I, I've said this before, but I know loads of people who went to see the Avengers who didn't watch any of the films before the Avengers and just enjoyed the spectacle. Or maybe they'd seen Iron Man and Iron Man Two. Well, no, that's what I mean. I, if it if it works, yeah. And like my mum went to see Logan. She'd never seen any X-Men films. She still liked it. Um, yeah, and there's probably but... going to be one or two scenes where you don't know why Bruce Willis is turning up and what he's doing. But <laughs> for the most part, it'll work and be a good laugh. So. Okay. All right, should we, should we pitch our own ideas for Spider-Man? Who's first? Who, who wants to pitch what they would do with this struggling, but maybe not for long, who knows, franchise? Let's see if you can guess what my project is from the title. It's going to be called Bugle Me This. <laughs> Kelsey Grammer moves to a job <laughs> at the paper 
as the agony aunt. <laughs> uh, no, but you're you're close. It is a, a sitcom starring J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson, which is all about life at the bugle. Um, Nicola Peltz is our main antagonist, and she's just graduated and is interning at the bugle. Now, now the 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 focus of episodes are going to be around J. Jonah Jameson having to go on adventures with this intern because she's basically forced on him by her grandmother, who's the head of a conglomerate that took over the Bugle, and the grandmother is played by Julie Andrews in an occasional <laughs> guest star capacity. Oh um, now, to go along with the rest, you know, they'll be investigating investigative journalists, and they'll be going around and you know poking their noses in and going undercover and all this sort of stuff. So there's no end to the fun we'll have. We can develop a, a love plot between um, Nicola Peltz and a, a young man who also works at the Bugle, um, but also working at the paper and part of the main cast. I want a sleazy but lovable celebrity gossip editor, played by uh, Bobby... On the Sykes. <laughs> no, 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 by Bobby Moynihan. Who? All right, yeah. Who, who is a, a cast member on Saturday Night Live. Oh, I've gone okay. for, like, I think achievable cast members here. And a roving reporter with no morals or scruples whatsoever, played by Tony Jennifer Grace. Coolidge. <laughs> <laughs> the first season would end with the comedic Who Shot Julie Andrews cliffhanger, as there'd be a, a running plot thread throughout the show that someone was wanting to target Julie Andrews and take over the paper, and maybe they think it's J. Jonah Jameson himself, and, you know, I don't know, we'll resolve it in season two. But for that, people need to give me money to make this sitcom. <laughs> and uh, I think J.K. Simmons would be up for it. I do think he'd yes. like to return to that role. It does seem like the role he was born to play, doesn't it? He's so perfect in it, isn't he? Yeah. Feels a bit broad for my taste. Oh, I love it. <laughs> you guys haven't seen Oz, have you? You've never watched that? No. No, no. See, that's the, the part that J.K. Simmons was born to play. I don't know, yeah. I've seen Whiplash. <laughs> I haven't seen that, actually. But yeah, I mean, Oz was the thing that made him, really, that character. I thought it was that M&M's advert he did. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> he was in Sam Raimi's film The Gift with uh, Aunt May. That's where oh. they kind of found him, and Raimi was like, oh, yeah, let's get, get him in. Oh, yeah. oh, so that's where he dug Rosemary Harris up from then. I wondered where he... Alan, what, what would you do then? So, puberty, analogy... Well, you know, the... Uh... Depressing Spider-Man <laughs> struggles with depression. No, I, I was... I, I decided not to go that route. It was a bit too obvious. Um, the sp- so I went slightly different, but the same. Um, sp- Spider-Man's been done, okay? It's been done to death. Let, forget that. What I'm going to do is a film called Man Spider. <laughs> I've seen that huh. film. <laughs> <laughs> a, oh, God, what was it called? It's called, like, Earth versus the Spider or something. And it's a film... It was a TV movie. It was a remake of an old film, but it came out in the years after um, Spider-Man on, like, Sci-Fi Channel or something. And it's about this guy who, like, basically gets bitten by a spider and thinks he's going to take on superpowers, but he just, like, transforms into a hideous mutant um, (laughs) disfigured freak and ends up, like, eating people. And it turns into a horror movie where he, like, turns his house into a nest and... Eat See, I wanted, I wanted to do that. I wanted to go full, like, Brundle Spider on it. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah so sort of, I couldn't think of any way to do it other than just the fly. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so, yeah, so, this, uh, I think it'd have to be animated because all the characters are, like, insects and spiders and things. So, <laughs> it'd be very kind of Pixar-ish. Uh, but you've got, so, your hero is a young 
teenage spider called Bob. Uh, Bob lives <laughs> with his family. <laughs> Bob lives with his family. Um, for some reason, it conforms to very traditional human social norms of a mum and a dad, handful of kids, very anthropomorphized kind of animals. We establish his life a little by uh, showing him at Spider High School, and he's he gets uh, he's a bit of a nerd, but not a total loser. A, a bigger spider calls him a bonehead and sort of smashes him up against the lockers, that sort of thing. So one day he gets caught by a, by a human. Um, it turns out he's been captured for scientific study. Uh, he gets put in a tank. He gets he gets put in a tank with these other spiders. And this what? <laughs> yeah. He gets put in a tank with these other spiders, and that's like the kind of prison movie section of the film. Uh, so, you know, at first he's nervous, he has to learn the ropes. He probably gets befriended by like an older, wiser spider who will, you know, take him under his wing. Yeah. Um, probably not have too much sort of prison rape in there because yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's for, the, it's for the kids. So um, it's probably going to be implied rather than shown. You're not going to have J.K. Simmons. Yeah, he, J.K. Simmons is the leader of the Aryans uh, spiders, which <laughs> um, <laughs> he's very good at. So then he gets taken by the humans. They do some kind of experiment with him in which they diddle with his DNA. They give him some human DNA. Uh, this has an effect on him. He starts to take on certain human characteristics. Uh, like he could start walking on two legs. Um Becomes very smart, like he's super smart, like a human kind of smart. Um, I don't know, other human characteristics he might take on in some way that would still work as a spider. I don't know. <laughs> Two don't eyes. Know what, what, what do humans do? We've got opposable thumbs. Yeah, there you go. Opposable he has thumb. an opposable thumb. That'll be good, yeah. So, so with his new skills, and now he can make tools and things, um, he manages to escape from the tank. But the human DNA has also made him more aggressive. We have sex for pleasure. So he starts doing that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> the human DNA has also made him like more aggressive. Uh, he's really vengeful towards humans, what they've done to him. So in an act of fury, as soon as he escapes the tank, sinks his teeth into the first human he finds, which just happens to be a young photographer doing a report for his school paper. But he immediately regrets it. He's, he's, he's realised he's taking out his anger on just some young innocent just because this kid is a human, like he, he hadn't done anything. He realizes that he's a racist man spider or speciesist. Oh. Um, what's more, he's a self-hating racist man spider because he's part human and he hates himself for it. But he's just upset. He's rueful. And so he decides he, he goes back to see his family and he needs to get back to what he knows. But when he gets there, he realizes how much he's changed. He can no longer communicate with his loved ones in the same way. He's he feels like too superior to them. He's like he's changed so much, and they're stuck in this this small world, this small web mentality that they have. And he feels like he's become something bigger. So he leaves. He's alone. He's confused. Moves to the city. Gets a small web of his own. Starts drinking to numb the pain. Until one day he sees on the news about a Spider Man, and he 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 sees this. This kid swinging around, he's, he's solving crime, whatever. And he mm. manages to track him down. He follows him home to where he discovers it is none other than the young boy he had bitten during his escape. Seeing this part spider, part human freak, and all the good things he's <laughs> achieving with his powers, it's an inspiration to Bob. And he decides... <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd forgotten as well by this point. Of the I was writing it. He decides to settle in and live right there in the joists of this boy's shit apartment in the city. He resolves <laughs> to help this young lad in whatever way he can. And this sets up the sequel where they become 
a team and they fight crime together. Uh, I have to figure out some way where Spider is like unusually, conveniently relevant in, t- in a crime. Oh no, he, he, he could be like trying to get into an apartment and he could like go through the, the, key, the lock. And, yeah. Uh, you know. And then what? <laughs> he has all the strength the to unlock it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> he could be a spy though, He'd make a good spy. Anyway, so that was my that was mine. It was I wanted to take that that I wanted to have some sort of meaning and like that it was seemed the next logical step of like becoming an adolescent, taking responsibility. This is the next thing where you feel like you have to move on and sort of become mm. some, someone else as you grow up. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Oh, lovely. But he's a spider. Do either of you want to guess what I've done? Because it's pretty obvious. Have uh, you done the fourth the Sam e- Raimi directed the evil yeah. spider dead man? Yes. <laughs> no. Oh, really? Oh, I thought you would have just done the fourth one starring John Malkovich as bit, the bit um, vulture. Bit of both. Oh, okay. So, Sam Raimi, everyone comes back. We digitally de-age the actors if we need to, because we're, we're doing this. We're, we're making Spider-Man 4. Um, so, we open okay. with, uh, with our Bruce Campbell cameo here, which is the one that was going to be included in Spider-Man 4, actually. This has come out since... Um, so Mysterio, Spider-Man villain, uh, being brought into jail, uh, one of those things where we didn't see the adventure, he's just, you know, handing him over to the police, we can piece it together, Mysterio is played by Mr. Bruce Campbell, uh, that was his, that was gonna be his little cameo, and so as Raimi was planning in Spider-Man 4, uh, the villain was gonna be the Vulture, but we won't be doing that, because that's, eh. Uh, instead, we are going to follow Dr. Michael Morbius, PhD, MD. Michael what? Michael Morbius. Morbius. Mm. Morbius. Is he morbidly obese? As in a... Morbius. Morbius. Is this a real character? Is this something you Yes, yes, I, I, this is from the comics. Michael Morbius. We need to guess what his thing is. Well, it'll become apparent. Mike, as I... Yeah, but I'm trying to get it from the name. Undertaker. Mike Morby. Morby. He's really Morby. Morby's. He's a beamkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, I'm afraid he's very similar to three villains we've already had in the franchise, but whatever. Um, he is a scientist. He's a mad scientist. Yeah. He's crazy. He's got a rare fatal blood disease. Oh, he's trying know. to find a cure. No time for human testing. Just inject me. Yep. <laughs> That's how it plays originally, but we'll we'll swap it round so it's like his his daughter or something, so that he's sympathetic. We know, and so he he goes and gets a vampire bat, and he's doing these experiments with vampire bats and making <laughs> like electricity and in, into them and turning into turning them into a cure, right? And he does okay. that. And he, oh shit, he like presses the wrong button and he turns himself into a vampire by mistake. <laughs> a pseudo vampire. Wait a minute, um, is this still a real character? Are you making this yeah, up now? He's a real guy. This is, this is from the comic books. I'm going to explain this character in a bit of detail okay. in a minute, right? Okay. Um, yeah, he now has to consume blood to survive. He has an aversion to light and he is super strong, super fast, and he can fly somehow inexplicably. Uh, hmm. He also has healing powers. And he looks like a vampire a bit, complete with fangs and a flattened nose. And if he bites others, they take on his uh, disease of vampirism in a sort of subdued, slavey kind of state. Here's your backstory about this guy. The Comics Code hmm. Authority from uh, 1954. I don't know if you know about these guys. Vaguely, yeah. No? They, they formed as a means of self-regulating comic books to stop the government oh. from stepping in and doing it. 
because in the hmm. 50s there was all this outcry from parents and stuff that horror comics were going to turn their kids into like satanic mental cases and there was going to you know like rock and roll and video games nowadays it, there's always something and it was comic books uh, in the 50s so they provided a code of ethics and standards and this was at a point where Oklahoma and Houston had already banned crime and horror comics outright so they needed to like do something to step in and make it all alright uh, but yeah the, the, the code itself outright banned a whole load of like stuff including portrayals of policemen judges, government officials uh, or respectful institutions in a way that created disrespectful authority um, there was a, a requirement that good always triumph over evil uh, there was a restriction on weapons, uh, so they were banned outright, which is why Batman has a no-guns rule, for example. And mm. there was also a blanket ban on werewolves, ghouls, zombies, and vampires. This basically killed off EC Comics, who made Tales from the Crypt, among others. Uh, William Gaines uh, believed the ban on certain words in the title, such as horror and terror, to be aimed specifically at him and his company, Mad Magazine escaped because they converted officially from being a comic book to a magazine so that the code stopped applying to them. <laughs> anyway, what they did in the year 1971 was they updated the code to allow for vampires, ghouls, and werewolves, but not zombies, uh, huh. just to kind of relax it a bit and make it less overzealous. They had to be handled in the classic tradition, such as high-caliber works by Poe, so Marvel in the mid-70s introduced some Haitian supervillain mind-controlled walking corpses called Zubembis. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, Good Lord. And Dr. Morbius debuted in 1971 following the Comics Code Authority's ban on vampires being lifted. It was them going crazy because why not, you know? It was issue 101 of uh, Spider-Man, actually, and the huh. first issue written by someone other than Stan Lee because Stan mm. Lee was currently writing a movie that never got made. Anyway, back to my pitch. Uh, so at the start, Peter and Mary Jane, they're getting back on track, and he's trying to be Spider-Man, she's trying to be an actor, all that shit. And this is interspliced with Morbius Origins story. He's probably a professor, and Peter's probably writing a story on him, or some nonsense like that. And anyway, they end up meeting, and they're a bit chummy, because it's exactly how these films work. Then Morbius goes crazy, there's some horror hijinks, and Spider-Man eventually intervenes after Morbius attacks Aunt May or something like that, bites her. So Spider-Man comes in, save the day, they all have a big fight, ending in a spooky showdown in the cemetery, and it ends with Morbius being impaled with a stake through the heart in a crypt. And uh, Spider-Man leaves, but he doesn't realise that Morbius has healing powers, and that the magic vampire shit like that doesn't do anything to him, because he's not a real vampire, he's just like a science experiment. So Morbius slowly comes back to life. Remember, this is all this is all being directed by Sam Evil Dead Raimi, so he's, he's going <laughs> mad with this. Like It's all like Evil Dead, it's brilliant. Uh, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's dial up the Evil Dead in this mother a little bit. <laughs> uh, Peter Parker takes Mary Jane and her sister sister's boyfriend and some random fifth wheel to a remote cabin in the woods just to get away from it all he needs a break uh morbius believes he can use spider-man's dna to cure himself or something so he just needs some spider blood it turns out that a load of his previous victims including aunt may have become his vampire minions which he didn't realize was going to happen 
but it, it, it is. It's happening. So now, Spidey and co are uh, in a cabin in the woods. And then we basically get Evil Dead with a huge budget and Spider-Man as uh, it fully embraces horror and the vampires set upon the cabin. And I suppose it has to have limited gore because it's probably aiming for PG-13, but, you know, whatever. Morbius and cronies manage to kill all but Spidey and Mary Jane, who stumble upon a book that seems to uh, inherently strike fear into the hearts of the vampires for some reason. And um, Hmm. Peter starts reading from it as it seems to force them to back away. And using this, they're able to overpower the vampires and win the big fight. And uh, they have to burn the cabin down and all that sort of stuff and walk home. Over the end credits, we see a series of scenes showing Ash from uh, Evil Dead trying to reassimilate himself after returning to the present after Army of Darkness. He he moves to New York and gets a job as a, a loudmouth wrestling announcer. Um, <laughs> but the place gets shut down because it's a bit shady. He gets a job yeah. as an usher at a theatre, but he resents all the rich, like, snooty people coming in, so he's a dick whenever he gets a chance, and he ultimately gets fired. So then he affects a, an accent, grows a moustache, so he gets hired as a waiter at a fancy French restaurant. Uh, he takes the French act a bit too far, and guests start accusing him of racism and stuff, and he snaps. <laughs> and uh, then he's hired as a cleaner for the Osborne family, and stumbles on a, a whole load of green goblin tech, and uh, becomes Mysterio, as we saw at the start of Amazing. the film. Um, but obviously that didn't work out, so now he's in jail annoyed. Now, Peter examines the book in New York, and he's reading it, and oh shit, there's deadites and shit, but in New York, and all of New York's infected, Ash is in jail, and uh, gets busted out when a deadite causes a taxi to come crashing through the wall or something like that. Um, it's lots of chaos outside, it's like Ghostbusters when the ghosts get out. And uh, mm. we're setting up the sequel here, Spider-Man 5, which is a crossover, uh, Evil Spider, Dead Man 5 or 4. <laughs> There we go. You really did pitch what you want to see, though, say, isn't it's, you? It's the film was... the fans want. <laughs> it's the what fans. the people want to see. I wonder how big the overlap of Evil Dead and Spider-Man fans is. I think you'll find to most just... Evil Dead fans are Spider-Man fans, but most Spider-Man fans are not Evil Dead fans. Yeah, I mean, that's a tiny demographic of people, yes. Where, where does the, I mean, that yellow car come into it? I don't think it's a tiny demographic. It's, it's enough to sustain a, you know, get a TV show commission that's coming up to it. Yeah, but not enough for season. a fourth film. Mm. Starring an incredibly cheap actor. I think they could have made Evil Dead 4 at any point they wanted, but it was about getting Sam Raimi to sit down and bother to write the thing, and he couldn't be asked. Um, the yellow car. What colour is it? Which one? What? Alan, yeah, what? Oh, must, mustard coloured car. The car. Well, it's in there, isn't it? It's Ash's car. It's, it's at the cabin all um, all <laughs> old because that's what's happened in the remake even though it went back in time. <laughs> Maybe it's the taxi that the, the deadite drives through the wall is that car. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. And then he... all, it all comes together. And he goes, hey, this souls. looks like my car. You know Bruce <laughs> Campbell hates that car and Sam Raimi's got like three of them because Bruce Campbell said he's going to destroy it if he ever gets the chance. <laughs> Because he uses it to <laughs> harass Bruce Campbell in all of his his stuff. Oh, you just would be Sam Raimi if you were were a Hollywood director. Soul, he's just like he's like your spirit animal. <laughs> he's good. Your spirit director. Yeah, he's good. 
Well, yeah, if anyone wants, I'll make uh, Evil Dead 4, um, <laughs> Spider-Man 4, and make them as one film, save you the money. Mm. There you go. Are you Sam Raimi uh, and can't be bothered to make another Evil Dead film? <laughs> Get in touch. Another week, another episode. As ever, thank you for listening. Another quick reminder that we have recently launched our new website at dimreturns.com. Please do go check it out. And now to play us out, a game from a, a quiz that we did in the recording of this episode that was cut from the, the main body for time. But it's a laugh in it. Enjoy. Okay, so Spider-Man quiz. This is the big Spider-Man quiz. It's the game to end. This is the Spider-Man 3 of us doing quiz games. <laughs> Play along at home, kids. <laughs> so... In a textbook case of nominative determinism, Mark Webb directed Mark Webb. The Amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> it's like something you'd find in a comic book. So, you have to tell me if these are real superhero... Uh, sorry, comic book and or superhero characters. You have to tell me if these are okay. real comic book and or superhero characters. I'm going to tell you they're like real names. Okay? Okay. okay. Uh, so this guy, Telford Porter... He becomes the Vanisher. Teleporter. Tell E Porter is his middle name. Start with E. Is he true or is he false? Is he real or not? I'm going to guess real. I think that's real. That is real. Yes, correct. (laughs) Okay, next up. uh, Joe Kerr. (laughs) Yeah, that's the Joker. That's definitely used in some regard when we were watching the Batman films. Calvin? He uses, it as an al- he uses it as an alias at some point. Calvin, true or false? Nah, I don't think so. Calvin is correct. The uh, the Joker has used this pseudonym on various occasions, but it's safe to assume that he's taking the piss. Oh, it's mm. not... His- oh, yeah, you said did say real name, yeah. didn't you? Yeah, yeah. sorry. Next one. Uh, Shelley Ter Anderson. To her <laughs> friends... Sorry, what? To her friends, <laughs> Shell, a.k.a. When you when you write it with a surname at the start, like on a register or something, like Anderson Shelter. <laughs> Anderson Shelter. I don't get it. What's that? An Anderson Shelter is like a bomb shelter from the Second World War. So I don't, oh. I don't know what, what comic book that might be. Shelley Ter <laughs> Anderson. I. The trouble is like. As bad as that is, and it can't be possibly real, I can't imagine Soul figure coming up with that. Yeah. It's too <laughs> Where would he even get Anderson Shelter from? I don't know why it's... Yeah, it's very specific. So, so I'm going to guess it's real. Is. Yeah, but why would you think... Right, I need to come up with some fake comic book names. Anderson <laughs> Shelter, obviously. I'll work backwards from there. True or false? I'm going to guess it's false. You you are, you think it's false? You think Soul? Oh no! Wait, that. I think it's true. Sorry, true. You think it's a real? Right, for the sake character. for this for the sake of argument, I'll say it's false then. That Soul came up with that one. Okay, uh, it is false. I made that up. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh dear. Uh, I mean, I thought you'd be better than that, frankly. <laughs> next one, clairvoyant. She's a spirit medium who communicates with. That's got to be real. Yeah, that's too too easy. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. That is, yeah, yeah, that is true. It is true. Uh, she actually played a character called Black Widow, but is nothing to do with the one in the Avengers, even though it's part of Marvel. Okay, next one, Doctor Entropy. <laughs> Doctor Entropy. I can believe that. I think that's probably real. Yeah. You saying true? 
I'm going to yeah, say false for true. argument's sake. Calvin gets the point. That is a Crash Bandicoot oh. villain and not a comic book uh. or superhero <laughs> character. Oh, damn. Uh. Okay. Uh, next one. William A. Zard. The wizard. Oh, God. I'm going to say true. Uh, I'll go false then, I suppose. <laughs> it is true. He's a, uh, he's a magician-looking motherfucker, that guy. William A. Zard. Brilliant. Now, this is, Juli- this is Calendar Man from Batman. Julian Gregory Day. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely buying to that yeah yeah uh yeah i'm gonna have to go true as well it is true this one okay the, he's a, a superhero that is a guy who has died and then brought back to life with science and is oh wait 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 wait, wait. he's called uh res res <laughs> erection <laughs> no, the name the name is frank laz frank Arus. einstein <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> True or false? I'm going to go false for this I'm one, going I false. I think that's from something else. I think that's real character that someone came up with. But uh, no, that is, probably... that is true, I'm afraid. Uh, the character's known <gasps> as Madman. It's uh, something published by Image Comics. Wow. Okay, next up. Hmm. Cassandra Nova. Cassie Nova. Oh. It's like a female Lothario or something. She yeah. has telepathic powers. I'm going to go True. Let's go with you. Yeah, Cassandra is a, an oracle. That's so. That's the connection. There. It is but true. She is a uh, an X Men ah. supervillain. Okay, next one. Hanover Fist. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's terrible. Oh, I, I believe it though. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, I've just start, I've just questioned. Uh, I've put false because that's from Heavy Metal. But oh. is Heavy Metal based on a comic? Oh. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I thought it was a, a villain from something. Oh, okay. Okay. Sarah Bellum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, I think that's yeah, true. true. That sounds right with the comic book Okay. Mold. I don't know if I should give you a point or not for this. Sarah Bellum is the mayor's aide in Powerpuff Girls, but that is a, a superhero <gasps> work, so really that should be a point, shouldn't it? I say yeah, comic book or superhero, so... so. Yeah. Um, okay, ready for this? Okay. Lopez Dispenser. <laughs> <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, dear. Does this person have any powers? <laughs> Does their they head pop sh- back really? <laughs> they shoot um they shoot bricks. They shoot bricks out, out of their mouth. <laughs> you I think you've made that up, Sol. I also think you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> How could you tell? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next up. Next up, Alan Key. <laughs> God. Uh, it seems so obvious, but I, I think it's probably true. I think it's true. It's so easy. It is false, Calvin gets a point. I made that one. Uh, <laughs> okay, two more. He's a mechanic. Uh, um, okay, Ms. B. Haven. <laughs> I think that one's true. Yeah, I can go with that one. Yeah, that's true. That is true. That's Mr. Freeze's flirty assistant in uh, Batman and Robin. <laughs> Only in the ah. movie, not in the comics. Okay, last one. Rick Hoche. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ricochet, yeah. That's that's a, yeah, that's like old school. That's like a Western character. Ricochet. Yeah, true. Calvin? He's a a gunslinger. It is true. He is um, from the Franco-Belgian comics that uh, published Tintin and stuff like that. Ricochet has his own series. Calvin, I'll give you ten points if you can tell me Spider-Pig as he appeared. Spider-Pig, not from The Simpsons, but the comic book rendition uh, what? Yes, Spider Pig. Uh, tell me his actual name or his Clement? superhero name because it isn't Spider Pig. It's something else. Clement Porcius P. Piggins. No, uh, it's Spider Ham <laughs> and his real name is Peter Porker. Oh, oh I should have oh, known. Got that, yeah, that's actually pretty good. But wait, there's more to actually play us out. Here is that inevitable. Antichrist, What Does the Fox Say mashup, as created by Bad Badgers. Once again, check out this episode's page on our website, dimreturns.com. We'll link to the video for this, uh, among other things. Have a pleasant week. Ducks and quack, and fish go blub, and the seal goes ow, ow, ow. But there's one sound that no one knows. What does the fox say? What the fuck?